Welcome to Texas Fame Law Unfiltered. I'm your host, Justin Jackson, alongside my associate attorney, Myron Kamahara. We're the Jackson Law Firm based in Cedar Park, Texas, just north of Boston. We created the show because there isn't a show about Texas family law that cuts through the BS. We're here to give you the unvarnished truth, the good, bad, and the other. But remember, nothing we say is legal advice specific to you. Every case is different. If you would like a free consultation with our office, call us at 512-528-1900 or just visit us on the web at www.thejacksonfirm.com. That's T-H-E jacksonfirm.com. Thanks and hope you enjoy the show. All right, what's up everybody? This is episode 3 of Texas Family Law Unfiltered. I'm Myron Kamihara alongside with Justin Jackson. We're from the Jackson Law Firm as we told you before. Today we're discussing 50/50 visitation, fact or fiction. Justin, this 50/50 visitation um this I guess schedule that most parents would want, at least most parents in consultations that I see want, um, can it be done in, in Texas family courts? Yeah. I mean, it, it uh, it's possible. Uh, the reason we titled the podcast the way we did is there are uh, plenty of sites out there with, I think, misinformation about 50, 50 visitation. I think sometimes it's overpromised, And I think sometimes uh, clients come in thinking it's uh, a given. And part of that is just based upon, I think, their notion of the fact that, you know, they brought this child into the world just as much as the other parent. Well, why should they be treated any different? So there there are, like I said, all, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, what we're trying to do at this show is just try to explain our perspective in terms of having done this for, you know, almost 18 years. Let's talk baseline here, right? And let's set up the listener for success. Baseline by default. The court, without any further evidence, right, will assign a what's called a primary parent, and then the the other parent would get what's called a standard possession order. And a standard possession order um, is probably the most common and in ninety percent of the cases that that we deal with. But that's basically where the children or, or child will visit with the non-primary parent and have the first third and fifth weekend and have one day midweek visit. Um, now, outside of that, how common or maybe common is, is, is the wrong word though. When you go into a consultation, are you asked about get, gaining 50, 50 custody for your clients? Do they always ask you some, something to that extent? It, I mean, it depends on who the client is. I mean, if I were to go very stereotypical, there's a lot of men that that's what they go into the consultation with. Uh, I think most men kind of go into the consultation knowing that family courts are a little biased at times, depending on the topic, but they're a little biased at times when it comes to custody situations towards women. So a lot of times it's men asking that question. Um, women don't ask the question as often, um, but it does happen. So I, you know, that's, that's my experience. But I mean, uh, going historically, I guess, uh, uh, most women are the primary. Would you agree? Well, if you go uh, a long, long time ago, I think that would be overwhelmingly the tradition, but right. in the more recent decades, we see a more mobile workplace amongst men and women, uh, two parents are earning incomes. They're working outside the home. They have busy lives. And so child rearing has become much more of a two-parent uh, arrangement. 
And that's partly out of choice. Uh, it's partly because of culture pressures, but it's also partly just because it's necessity. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I would also agree that most men who are in, uh, well, at least most men with that I consult with ask for 50-50 as well. Now, if 50-50, excuse me, if standard possession order is the the common scenario and 50-50 is, is the, I guess, uncommon scenario, when is it ideal to have a 50-50 type of visitation schedule? Uh, you know, I think an ideal case for... 5050 uh, would be number one, your client comes in and there's been a separation period and they've been trying visitation out um, that includes a 5050 arrangement. And what typically happens is either quote unquote, both parties will say it works or one party will say it doesn't work anymore. But at least if you've tried it, it helps a little bit with the judge and saying, look, we're, we're not asking you to, to blaze any trail. We're just asking you to do what we've been doing. So that's one scenario. Another scenario is, um, and, and of course, this is uh, you know the, the the best situation of what parents agree to it um, moving forward. But that's not always the case. The other scenario is both parents um, have work schedules that just require it. Um, that would be you know possibly they they work out of town quite a bit. Their working hours are of a nature that. Uh, you know, they, they just, they can't be home when the kids are home. Right. Um, so that's another category. The La last one I see the most common would be is that there's a child in the relationship that's at least 12 and that child requests it. Uh, there's a place in the family code that actually provides that a, it's mandatory for the judge to talk to a child that's 12 years or older. If a party requests it and it's a private uh, meeting with the judge, um, it, it can be made, it can be done on the record, but in private, uh, or it can be done purely in private, not on the record. Now I'll, I'll add one little element to that on the record part, the meeting with the judge, quote unquote, if you choose it on the record is not on the record, the way you would think it is in the sense that you can access a transcript. Matter of fact, it's that area of the law is a little gray still on whether you can even get the transcript of what the child said to the judge, but nevertheless, getting back to the question, um, if a kid's at least 12, uh, or if you have more than two kids or at least 12, then it just, and they both want 50, 50, it just makes your odds go way up because there's a higher chance the judge will uh, grant that in line of the child's wishes. Yeah, I agree with that. What's, what's important to know as well about the code and the code, uh, obligating the court to, to speak to a child 12 or older, if requested by a party is that it doesn't necessarily obligate the court to make to render a decision based off what the the child says. So that's an important to note. I want to go back to number one, though, the pattern of doing it prior to, to the case starting. And a pattern would be um, where the two parties have agreed uh, before the case started. I want to talk about the opposite situation. And this is where I think it's common in our practice when we speak to primarily fathers in consultations is where they've been doing a pattern. Um, separate parents are separated. They're doing a pattern that almost mimics a standard possession order, but now that we're going to court, they want a 50, 50. What, what do you tell a client who has already established a pattern that's against his position for 50, 50, but now that we're in court, things are filed, they're official. Now he wants 50, 50. Yeah, you have to take 
a couple of different scenarios. Hopefully when your kids is 12 years older and you say they've tasted a standard possession order and they hate it, or you, uh, what you really have to do in that situation is set expectations. Of course, right. Um, it's always important to set realistic expectations on that. Um, but as far as, you know, what else you can do, um, just tell the judge that it's not working from your perspective. Same thing. If you had been doing a 50, 50 schedule and one party says, uh, well, judge, I know he wants to continue it or she wants to continue it, but I'm going to raise the, it's not working flag. You can do that same thing. If you're trying a standard possession order to start and it's not working you know, examples. Um, cause just saying it's not working is a vague statement. Sure. How would it not work? It would not work possibly because either a, you're seeing behavioral issues with the number of exchanges, right. uh, pickups and drop-offs. Right. One of the, one of the disadvantages of a standard possession order, in my opinion, is it creates more uh, exchange points for the children, more packing up, more moving over to another parent then moving back to the parent's house. It, it, there's more of those than in some of the 50, 50 schedules that are out there. And so you can raise the, that issue. You can raise that. Um, it is just too chaotic for the kids schooling or their social patterns. There's a whole bunch of different things you can conceive of that, uh, that this schedule isn't working and it's time to try a new one. Um, and of course, what are other ways that you can even approach this? There's in a family law case, there's temporary orders and there's final orders. One of the best ways to, to try and test something is through temporary orders. Right. Um, you don't just jump straight to a trial. You you ask the judge, look, we've been trying this opposite schedule. I don't I don't think it works for these reasons. Will you grant us the opportunity to try a 50-50 schedule? Right. Sometimes it's just the way you frame it. Actually, that's a great point because sometimes when we're in the heat of of things, right? Uh heat of battle is probably a wrong word, but we're in the heat of things. And even speaking with our client and prepping for our temporary orders, we're thinking about setting a a precedent almost for the entire case but the way you bring it up in regards to a 50 50 it's almost a trial period which actually would be the best time to do it is during the pendency of the case because if it doesn't work out you can always change it at finals and if it is working out you can just finalize it at finals so i, I think that's a great point we talked about when these cases are uh or when when the facts are ideal for a 50-50 schedule, why not more often though? Why why can't we or why don't they do a 50-50 more often, I should say? Yeah. And I always have to point to the bookshelf because the bookshelf has the family code. Yes. The family code is not um it doesn't specifically talk about 50-50 visitation schedules. Uh, matter of fact, really the only visitation schedule it has is a standard possession order. And there are places in the code uh, that talk about the court can grant a different visitation schedule. It's, it, the problem, though, is, is that the family code says that a standard possession order is the presumption. Right. And, and a presumption just means that's how the case starts with the, you can call it, uh, just the starting advantage is heavily in favor of a standard possession order. And translating that to my experience it's not just an advantage it's almost the go-to it's the reflexive response judges have when they see two parents that don't agree on a visitation schedule they just go well family code says i can fall back on my presumption i can get lazy about it which frankly in my humble opinion um judges will get lazy on their on in their job and look at the at the uh, presumption as an easy out 
And so it's incumbent upon the, the party and the, their attorney to really impress upon the court that you can go beyond the presumption. You're not just totally you know, shackled to the presumption, but that is the quick explanation as to why you don't see them as often as because judges just have this easy presumption to fall back. On. Yeah, that, that reflexive presumption becomes difficult too because when you have when both parents are good, there's no evidence against either of them for being a bad parent. Um, they share an equal task for the kids. Um, and the judge makes a reflect reflexive um type of ruling to standard possession order. And, and now you you completely you almost overlook the facts that are on record that both parents are are very good at being parents and, and co-parent well in, in, in these type of schedules. Right. And, and that's where it gets bad is if we just assume that the presumpt that one person has to be the primary and the other person has to have a standard possession order. Um, tell us about the family lawyer lobbyists though, because, you know, really this, the law or the code, I should say is made by the state legislature. Right. And from whatever, type of um, information they're receiving from either lobbyists, their own experience, or from their constituents, right? Um, a lot of it, though, is lobbyists that are, are trying to establish a law or change a law. And what is the opposition from the family lawyer lobbyists in this case, or 50-50? It's really hard to pinpoint uh, exactly what the nature of the opposition is. Um, but I can definitely say that there are lobby groups out there. They're not hard to find online. If you just uh, look up some of the favorite lobby groups uh, that uh, are, I, I believe they might still be propped up by the Texas State Bar. I know that there was a lawsuit um, a year or so ago that was an effort to remove funding from certain lobby interests um, that attorneys were paying for without having consented to the lobbying effort itself. So the, the needless to say there are these lobby groups out there that are, are quite powerful in my opinion they're quite propped up by the family the big family law firms and uh you know i i've written a letter to the state legislature um every year the last few years and every year i change it a little bit because it's either a new bill that's getting introduced or there's some new facts that have come to light but my letter to the legislature is one of the only ones that you'll find from any family lawyer in the state willing to stand up and say we need an equal parenting law uh, enacted that gives parents an equal chance uh, to advocate for such uh, a visitation schedule and not not have them, uh, you know, with their back against the wall with this presumption. Um, and every, you know, last few years, every year that led, that letter has made the rounds. Um, there's been, I'd say, inches of progress. It's not uh, massive progress, but more and more sponsors in the legislature are, are stepping forward to support uh, equal parenting, but it's nowhere near the finish line where there's just way too much opposition. And getting sp specifically back to that opposition, um, some of the opposition is just misdirection. You know, one of the arguments that they make against equal parenting um, is that um, there are places in the code for the judge to make an equal parenting ruling. And if the judge is going to do it, then they have the power to do it. Um, and, and this is coming from the lobbyist perspective, these, these people that make these kind of comments, they don't practice in courts the way we do. 
Um, yeah, they're, they're not they're not in the trenches. Yeah, they're working up and knocking on doors of legislatures. That's what yeah, they're doing. <laughs> and, and, and and granted, they're also looking at it from a very academic standpoint. Uh, of course, with their own biases and interests. Um, but they look at it from the standpoint of the code says you can deviate from a standard possession order. So why do we have to overhaul the code if if you can deviate from it? The, the reality is it's because um, it, it's probably 90 plus percent of my cases, the judge simply falls right back on the presumption and gives very little consideration to a 50-50 visitation schedule. And so you need to have a, a legal change in the law to get judges off of this just inflexible approach. What if, and this is going a little bit off topic here, but what if they remove the, the word or yeah, what if they move the, the, the word presumption, right. And allowed for the standard possession order still in the code, but also allowed for, um, not make it the, the default if no other facts uh, can be proven to to sway the judge to use his discretion otherwise. What, what, what kind of wording would have to be used in there? There's a number of different approaches that have been taken. Um, I I personally think that at, at a minimum, you, you just need to remove that presumption. Remove it 100%. I got gotcha. you. Um, if you're going to have a presumption in favor of any schedule, uh, in my mind, it should be presumed that you have two good parents, right? Right. And that two good parents who are serving the best interest of the kids. And to me, it should be that if you're going to have a presumption, it should be in favor of a 50-50 schedule. And uh, that's actually if, a good point. If anything, it's the outliers, the, the people with situations or facts or just problems with their own ability to parent. That's when those other alternative schedules should arise. But at a minimum, it shouldn't be that we walk into court where the judge feels like they have to make one parent the winner, one parent the loser. And yes, of course, what happens when uh, you know one parent is facing such a horrible outcome in terms of being treated, you know, as the lesser parent? What do you think that does to attorneys' fees? Yeah, it, it rises always. Yeah, yeah, exponentially. Yeah, I mean, and that's part of the reason why you have such opposition from different lobbyist groups and, and big family law firms in support of these lobbying efforts is, you know, you, you remove a lot of these custody battles, then you're removing countless retainers. You know what? You actually bring up a good point. If 50-50 was the presumption and the judge had the discretion to knock it back down to the standard possession order, it's actually a really good point because it's much easier to prove up that a parent is bad than it is to prove up that a parent is good. Wouldn't you agree? Oh. Completely. Yeah. Um, the and and the another reason, uh, which is not as often, right, is the parent on losing end often gives up. They're tired or they run out of money. And this is this kind of leads back to the the lobbyist motivation of representing big law because contested cases, you know, require money, right? If we're going into trial, any work the attorney does, especially if they're arguing against the presumption of family code, as we just mentioned, and arguing for 50-50, some people run out of money. And it's a very realistic part of litigating family law cases. Um, the, the sad part about this is I think running out of money or the thought of running out of money leads to the, the give up, right? And it's not just giving it up 
based off principle. It's, it's basically, or based off the code, it's basically giving up because you have run out of resources. Yeah, and we, we see that. I mean, we, we've had clients are just beaten to the point where they just, they feel like they have to sign what they have to sign because they, they can't, they can't fund the, the fight anymore. But there's a, you know, one other thing that when you talk about money, there's one other tie-in to, to these, uh, these different schedules. And it's frustrating to watch play out is sometimes the motivation to not give 50-50 visitation by one parent. In other words, you have a parent opposed mm, to 50-50. Interesting. Is they want to make sure that they get some kind of financial child support or some, they use it as leverage. They want child support of some sort. They need um, some sort of unequal property division. And they sometimes that's leveraged. Um, but one of the other aspects of it is if a parent is going to get a standard possession order, nine out of 10 times, they're going to also pay child support. So it's kind of like the double whammy is what I like to consider it. Well, would the would you think it's safe to say that I, I guess the some of our clients that we see or our consultations or, or people off the street, their their lay understanding of perhaps a fifty fifty two is that their obligation to pay to pay child support wouldn't exist. You you think that's that's common? Yeah, I mean, yeah. When you when you talk about a fifty fifty schedule. Uh, I think most parents, when they talk 50-50 schedules, they genuinely just want the extra time. But I also think they assume, without it being their primary focus, that there shouldn't be any child support. Yeah, I support the kids when they're with me, and you support the kids when they're with you, right? Is is that, have you ever had a judge in your career assign a 50-50 and child support? It happens. Right. It happens a couple scenarios, of course, by agreement. Right. That's sometimes where the 50-50 is just used as leverage. I'll give you the 50-50, but you need to pay either regular child support or, heaven forbid, even sometimes more right. uh, child support than you normally would have. In other words, you, you're supposed to pay me $1,500. i am going to make it 2000 and I'm going to give you the 50-50. I've seen it really used that horribly, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a uh, pay-for-place type of strategy. Totally. Yeah. And, then I, and then, of course, there's another scenario that's not as nefarious at all. It's really just... The judge goes, you know what? I, I think these are two fantastic parents. One, and I'm just using hypotheticals, makes $250,000 a year. The other has been a stay-at-home mom. Uh, I'm not going to assess child support as a punitive measure, but just to try and help these children to where when they're with mom, they're not in poverty. And then when they're with dad, they yes, have a, a I get what you're saying. So they kind of can live an equal type of living with both parents. I, I definitely understand that. Here's another thing before we move on to the next topic, though. When you have, and this is for you uh, in your practice, when you have a situation where you have two good parents, right, and you have a temporary orders coming up, and we have a deal on the table, it can be 50-50 with no child support, and your client wants primary. That's when, at least in, in, in my experience, it becomes difficult to to sway the client back towards the middle as far as accepting the settlement. Because if you have two good parents, it literally is a gamble. If, especially if the pattern has been 50-50 prior to going into temporary orders, right? Do you, do you tell your client, you know, let's take a gamble or, or are we more towards a settlement mindset for these set of facts? 
you know, I, the word gamble is something, if I ever use that term, I ask my client, do you want to gamble? Because I tell them, I don't really like gambling. Now, I know sometimes in our personal lives, we, you know, we, we might gamble on something just for fun, right. but in, in our professional lives, you know, we are not in, we're not in a position to gamble with the client's case at all. In right. fact, if anything, it's our job to be really conservative, uh, not just because we're supposed to provide conservative advice, but because we just know how perilous it is when you go into court. Sure. And, and a lot of times when we advise a client to play conservative, it's because of who the judge is that we know your case is going to be heard in front of. Uh, there are certain judges that are very predictable. Right. There are also certain judges that are very erratic. And I, I, I have to look at the judge that we're dealing with and, and oftentimes we'll have already had that conversation three times, three or four times well before we ever get to settlement. I'll remind them who this judge is, how they think, but I'll remind them again in settlement who this judge is and ask him again, you know, you, you might have this erratic judge. Do you want to spend another $10,000 gambling and you get a worse result? Right. It's like, imagine how I want you to consider how bad you will feel if we get a worse result. Correct. Uh, and of course, if you don't feel like that's a huge risk, then we'll roll those dice. You know, what's funny about that is I remember double checking my file to see who the judge was. And then I had to remind him again that, look, uh, I think the settlement is best for us. Let's move on. So there's obviously techniques that we use, right? There's techniques to advocate for 50-50 in court, um, even in settlement talks too, right? In negotiation, can you tell us about some of those uh, techniques? Yeah, so we're going to mix a little bit of the techniques uh, for court and negotiations. Uh, let's talk about one that's related to court. One of the big strategies is it's partly just personality related or just the approach that your attorney takes. Uh, if you want a 50-50 visitation schedule and early in the case, your attorney uh, just indicates they won't push or they won't pursue it, that's always a problem. Your right. client should steer the ship. You right. know, we, we simply are in a position to inform the client of what we think is likely based upon your, your facts. We can't predict the future. But if you have an, an attorney who's just unwilling to pursue that, there could be some kind of bias that they're just against that in general. Or it could just be they're not willing to work for you the way that you need an attorney to work for you. And you're paying them, I would believe. They probably, may not be as experienced as well. True. Yeah. And you're probably paying them really good money. Right. So you should at least get an attorney who is willing to, to pursue your interests. But let's let's assume you do have an attorney who's willing to pursue the 50-50 for you. Um, to me, uh, it, it, let's go back to that judge's uh, discussion we just had. If you have a judge who grants it at, at times, and the, the attorney has uh, expressed it to you, this judge will grant 50-50 at times. Um, you may not need to be as forceful uh, with arguing for it as you would with a judge who doesn't grant it very often. With a judge that doesn't grant it very often, um, you, you've really got to dive into the sections in the code where it says the presumption doesn't have to be followed for a standard possession order. Uh, there's also a part in the code that talks about uh, gender bias. There can be no gender bias. You can remind the judge of that. Sometimes the judge, the attorney has to get the judge a little out of their comfort zone and talk about how fundamentally unfair it would be to place these parents in a winning and a losing position. And, then, and that truly to promote peace for these children and in peace amongst the family, uh, the best thing would be to put neither of them as a clear winner in the case. And when you when you kind of put it in those terms to a judge, it becomes more palatable to them. 
because one of the big things that a judge always has is kind of a, uh, it, it just grates in their mind, I think, is that uh, parties come in looking out for themselves a lot. Yes. And, and judges <clears throat> do not uh, care as much about how a party feels about an outcome. Their job is to worry about how a kid is going to feel about the outcome. Best so, interest of the child. That's right. So leaving out as much as possible, this is unfair to me. Talk about how unfair it is to your children. Talk about their perspective and leave the you part out because when they start hearing me, 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 the judge just feels like in, instinctively that you're being selfish. Right. Let, let me ask you a question. This is from a practice standpoint and even would apply to pro se litigants though. When you remind a court of the code, right? There's a certain demeanor and you definitely don't want to be disrespectful disrespectful as you're reminding the court of the code that you assume they've already know, they've already read um but do you do it in a sense where you're reflecting back on previous experience with that judge and maybe not specifically to your, your case that you're thinking of or do you do it more at, in a generalized fashion where you're strictly just referring to the code because you and I know our experiences come with being and dealing with these judges on a weekly basis. We know what they like. We know what they don't like. And we've also known what they've done in our previous cases, given a certain set of facts, right? And I know, and in the case I'm thinking of specifically in my mind, from a practice standpoint, this judge that we were in front of on a different case would, well, awarded my client a standard possession order, but in a previous case, he awarded a 50-50. So from a practice standpoint, and even for a pro se litigants, Justin, you know, is it proper when we, when dealing with this technique alone to just generalize and stay within the code, which I believe is probably the safest, right? But, or, or do you want to refer back to your other cases? Maybe not in a specific way, but just remind the judge of how he ruled. Yeah. I mean, we're, it's not like it's an absolute prohibition to bring up another case, but no, no attorney I know and no practitioner I know like specifically brings up another case. Right. In, in my mind, it just kind of goes against the grain of what we're supposed to be doing up there. But I absolutely will agree and say that uh, a good attorney will have a working knowledge of different 50, 50 type cases they've worked with this judge in the past. Right. And not just know the case a little bit, but also know some of the specific factors that the attorney believes influence the judge to make that type of ruling. And of course, also to have a mental scorecard of, do I always lose every time I present this kind of case or do I just most of the time, or do I some of the time, or do I like what range of the percentage do I lose sure. when I make these arguments? So you have a little bit of a mental scorecard on how common 50 50 is with that judge. You also have a little bit of a mental scorecard on certain factors that have influenced a judge in the past. How do you get those factors? A lot of times judges, they speak to their logic and reasoning when they make a ruling. So it's really important to make those attorneys should be making those mental notes because it helps future cases. But I also I tend to do that. I, I like to remember who I was with, what types of cases they made certain rulings. And I reflect on it when I'm just like you said, on a new case, uh, what I like to do is in some ways it's a little bit of flattery to the judge. Right. I tell a judge, I know that you don't typically award 50-50 visitation. What just by saying that immediately, it's it's representing to the court how familiar you are with this judge and that you respect the fact that the judge has certain tendencies 
and you're not there to call a judge an idiot. You're there to to respect those tendencies. Yes, okay? you kind of disarm the court yes. in that sense. So you you advise the court that you're aware of the tendencies. You disarm those tendencies. Then here's the where the magic comes in. You have to go into uh, different bases for other cases where the judge you believe made a certain ruling and disarm those as well. So you'll say something like, judge, I know you don't typically make these types of rulings. Um, it, it's been my observation in the past that sometimes it will relate to the fact that someone has an XYZ factor, another XYZ factor. I want to remind the court though, this case has none of those factors. Okay. This is a unique case. This is not like some of the other ones you've handled. And and just there's a there's an artfulness and a gentleness to present that. Sometimes it needs to be a little more forceful, um, but more than anything, you're you know you'll you'll uh, you'll gain favor with the court if you can find a gentle way to do it. Right. That, that's a good point. The, the the second and third point, though, you, you we've kind of touched on already, right? It's reminding the court of the child's best interests, right? And then also um, not making it about the party that you represent, or if you're a pro se litigant, not making it about yourself, making it all about the kids. It's in the best interest of the kids to have, um, or for, for myself and, and, and the other party to have a 50, 50 schedule. Um, the next point though I want to move on to is, I don't think it's going to be the most popular point, but it's offering child support, even with a 50, 50 order. Yeah. So one of the first things that I do when I have a client come in and say, Hey, I want a 50, 50 schedule. My next question is, well, how does your spouse feel about that? And we're just going to assume that the answer, you know, for purposes of this example is no, she will not do it. She will in no certain term, no uncertain terms agree to it. Of course, then I like to try and probe why. Um, sometimes my client can't exactly say why. Yes. Sometimes yes. they just say, she just won't agree to it. She just says it's not good. And it's just these vague, ter this vague terminology. Well, what do you do next? Uh, I think an intelligent attorney who cares about their client, cares about the billing, cares about peace, cares about trying to get this case resolved in a nice, easy way for your, for the client, which benefits everyone, is to very early have a conversation with opposing counsel. So one of the first calls you should have when you have a client wants 50-50 and the other side doesn't is just have a quick call with the attorney and ask them, is child support a either a motivating factor or the principal only motivating factor. And a lot of times if you're talking to a opposing counsel that has any sense of candor, uh, really frankly, even looking out for their the best interests of their client, they'll tell you straight up like what the motivating factor is because if if the part if, if the other spouse really is fine with the 50/50 schedule and they just want child support, why wouldn't the opposing counsel let me know that, especially if we're willing to grant it? Right. So the, the the point you're really getting at is, and, and I'll, I'll kind of bookend it, is you should always be willing, as much as it sounds horrible to say this, you should be willing to offer child support to get 50-50 if it's something you can afford. There are certain parties that clients have had, they can't afford child support. And, 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 I, and, and I can respect and understand that. I mean, there's only so much blood you can squeeze from a turnip. Right. Uh, but if you can afford it, and 50-50 visitation is is worthwhile, the monetary exchange, I say bite that bullet and be willing to offer. And that that's that's just in a um that's just dealing with the kid issues. But when we're dealing in a divorce too, you can off, also offer more property in the distribution of marital assets. 
this may not also be a popular uh, way or technique, I should say, but uh, it can happen if you're able to do it. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the call sometimes will just go like this. You know, uh, my client wants 50-50. I'm understanding your client does not. Can you tell me, is there anything uh, that we can offer to your client to get us to a 50-50? And sometimes it's the child support. Uh, and sometimes it's also property. Sometimes it's one, sometimes the other, sometimes it's both. Right. And it, you know, it, it's, it's horrible to talk about, uh, buying time with your kids. Oh, or, I, I have or, problems with this. Like, seriously, this is a pay for play and this is almost a shakedown. Yeah. Honestly, it is. Even when we have these, um, conversations with opposing counsel, it's, it's a shakedown, Justin. I, I, I don't like this at all. I don't, but you know, we, we're, we're all in the game and we're trying to find a resolution. And uh, again, I respect opposing counsel, even when they, they employ these measures because their hands are tied sometimes. Yeah. yeah you know, they're, they're, they're told by the client, I, I won't agree to X, Y, Z, unless I get these things. And so it's easy to vilify all the attorneys. And sometimes there's good reason to vilify attorneys, but sometimes it's just, <laughs> Hey, we're just working on behalf of our clients. Yeah, that, that is true. I, 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 there's no disrespect. I mean, there, there's certain ones that I can think of, but um, there's definitely no disrespect. I just don't like the, the technique when it comes across my desk. You know, what's interesting though, I've had some women as clients who offered 50, 50 and, even though we were offered child support, say, I don't want his money. I'm good without his money. Yeah, I, I was fine. There, there are certain uh, people that come through our doors that are just really um, above the fray. They're just good people, and they're not looking to leverage something. Uh, a lot of times they've just made a decision to leave the relationship for, for more pure reasons, just things weren't working out. But they're not looking to make a buck off of their ex or or find a way to have their ex prop up their lifestyle, anything like that. They're willing just to move on. And I always find that that interesting, but it is rare. And I have seen that happen. Yeah. And, and you know, we're not talking about, we're not talking about, uh, well, at least in my client's case, you know, she, she it wasn't like she was a, a rich or, or wealthy or anything like that, or, or had a very substantial amount of monthly resources. It, it was just something where she said that I can take care of my kids myself with my money that I make. And I was like, are you sure? Because I have to advise you that you're entitled to to child support. Um, but again, totally opposite from what we're talking about with the pay for play. But I thought it was, I thought it was, um, I, I thought it, was it, it was, it was pretty um, awesome of her to to just want to move on from the relationship without any any type of money grab. You know? Yeah. Can you tell us about any other techniques that you use? Yeah, I think it segues. It's okay. the next technique, okay. which is uh, the scenarios that you just mentioned where you have a, a, a spouse on the other side that's just willing to walk away and, for example, even decline certain things that are offered. Right. Just extremely reasonable. I would say 99.9% .9 of those cases, both spouses had been kind to one another uh, to some degree. It doesn't mean that you know they want to continue the relationship. It's just that they they weren't rubbing salt in any of the wounds. They weren't uh, you know trying to antagonize each other, and and really to label this point, it's just be kind, be kind to your ex. Um, 
that's the hardest thing for a lot of people to do, especially when they've been wronged in a relationship or they've been hurt uh, for whatever reason. Maybe their spouse cheated on them. Maybe uh, they out of the blue wanted a divorce and they upended their life. Well, what I've seen happen is is the 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 opposition to a 50-50 schedule so often is rooted in emotion. It's not actually rooted in something that the opposing party actually feels strongly about. It's just, it's a, it's a tool that they know can exact some degree of revenge. And so it, it, let's just hypothetically call my client, the husband and the opposing parties, the wife, if the husband has, uh, put the wife in a terrible bind somehow, whether it be he um, emotionally abused her some degree in the past. Maybe he's uh, been controlling. Maybe he's been uh, doing things that led her to believe that he was cheating on her. Whatever the transgression may be, um, there's always an ability to try and work towards showing good faith to the, uh, the opposing party, um, trying to bury the hatchet. Because what, what happens sometimes is, you know, they come in uh, having maybe done something wrong that caused, you know, the, the beginning of the process. The opposing spouse, the wife, will say in this scenario, will lobby, will lodge over some really horrible uh, claims. Maybe it's, you know, the standard possession order, full child support, maybe full spousal support, and a vastly disproportionate property division. A lot of times, all those things combined are just a bundle of legal words that are saying i am angry at you right, right and i want you to acknowledge how wrong you were right right and and if you can just acknowledge the hurt the wrong and apologize and be sincere about it and not do it from a position that looks smells and feels like it's i just want to win my case no i am truly sorry for what i did i want to treat you uh, yeah i want our relationship even though it's technically over from the romantic sense we still have kids together. We can work together. I'm going to be a good co-parent. I'm going to be someone that from now on, like shows more accountability to you in terms of like the fact that I, I, I know what I did. I I've, I've taken ownership of it. And instead what a lot of my men clients do in this hypothetical is go, Oh, she wants to do that. Well, we're going to make it equally miserable on her. Yeah. And I'm going to fight fire with fire. Fighting fire with fire in family court is expensive. It's expensive and it's <laughs> rarely leads to the outcomes that clients actually want. Yeah. Well, it, it, it also I I think too that clients who want to fight fire with fire sometimes get they're 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 left in a worse position than they, they were originally in. Uh especially because of the financial resources that it takes just to go to court for a, a full trial, a full evidentiary hearing. You know what's funny about that, though, from a attorney's perspective? I know we're talking from a client perspective now, but reminding your client that to not get emotional about or not to attach emotions to, to some of these offers that we get, right? Or some of these offers or proposals that we're sending out. Because sending over... um the bundle of legal words that's basically just say you did it wrong and I want an apology, which gives him the least amount he would get according to the family code, right? Could could be solved by not attaching too much emotion to the proposal itself and giving him 
a proposal that is is substantiated by facts, right? And and from an attorney standpoint, though, what we try to remind our clients about that, I've had some pushback, um, sometimes maybe thinking that I wasn't hearing them. But in actuality, what I like to do, it, the reason why I like to remind them not to attach a motion to any offer or or what or whatever we're trying to do to negotiate is because of the the cost factor in this, right? If we send over a a lower proposal that is not substantiated by facts, the fire to fire scenario comes back, right? And I see this often actually, where it comes back, and now we are further from settlement than where we where we were yeah. at the beginning. Uh, completely. I'll add in that uh, it's important too. Uh, to, in Texas, you can record any conversation that you're a part of. I always find it helpful before the divorce starts up, or even if it's in the middle of the divorce, if you ever have a moment to talk to their spouse and, and you're able to have a candid conversation, uh, even if it's a short conversation where they express a willingness to do 50-50 or an interest in it, uh, they don't even have to necessarily exactly say 50-50, but they can talk about a schedule that looks like 50-50. And, and a lot of times, People's guards are down when they're not in court, they're not in front of their attorney, they're at home, they're at the kitchen table. Uh, you might catch some things on a recording that you can play later that indicate, you know what, she is totally or he or she has totally changed their tune uh, on you know what they want. I got you. Okay, so we spoke about the techniques, right, that we use in court and even during negotiation, during settlement talk. Let's talk about what exactly is a 50-50 schedule look like, right? And I think the easiest schedule to imagine uh, is would be a week on, week off, a Sunday to Sunday, um, which would be dad gets one Sunday, he he gets the kids Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then on Sunday, uh, he exchanges with mom and mom gets the kids the following week and it just alternates. Yeah, that's that's a common 50-50 schedule. You know, I like the Sunday at six to Sunday at six um, because it's not too late in the evening. It's not too early in the day. Let's there be a pack up period and then you have a fresh week uh, with the kids in that scenario. Um, to your point, though, Justin, sorry. To your point, though, this schedule is great because um, of what of of your argument against the standard possession order. Sometimes is that because the exchanges are are less frequent; and they're only on the Sundays, and they're not midweek where everyone, including you know, most adults are busy, right, with, with the kids. So they're they're infrequent uh, exchanges and infrequent. Uh, changes in in the kid's location, right? Because it's only on a Sunday. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in a standard possession order, you have a Thursday midweek during the school year, which it, it's like they it, it's almost like they the people who enacted this don't live in reality because during the middle of a school week, I mean, or with traffic, yeah, <laughs> you got you got one, two, or three kids. Doesn't matter if it's one, two, three, or four. Doesn't matter. Uh, they all have book bags. They all have stuff that. Uh, well, I shouldn't say book bags as much because I'm shocked to hear they don't even do textbooks at some of the schools anymore. Yeah. That's another story. Yeah, But they have their book bags. They will need clothes for that 
night and you say, well, both parents are going to have clothes, but you know, that's, that's naive. These kids, they have a certain few outfits they love to wear. So there's going to be some clothing packing. Uh, if you have a daughter, she's going to pry and she's a little older. She's going to want to bring all of her makeup and hair equipment back right. and forth. Right. Uh, even if you go, well, both parents have that. Well, we, most of the times we do, but again, there's certain things that they just have to have with them at all times. So there's going to be a bag. And on a Thursday, you're asking that kid uh, if there's a pickup at school to have brought their bag with all their stuff to school and then get picked up by the parent. It's, it's a ridiculous concept. On top of that, uh, now you're, you know, that kid's uh, week is kind of chopped up to where now they're going to one parent's house just for that one night, uh, you know, having to bring the things that are specific for that, uh, that Friday morning at school. Uh, so they can get back in the routine. So they're so they're bringing with them stuff to school on Thursday, uh, so they can spend time with the parent. And then they're having to bring that same stuff back to school on Friday, so they get picked up by the other parent. It's just. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Per, kind, kind of off topic, but personal question. You and I both have daughters, right? Yes. They they spend time with their mom, and then they spend time with us at our house. My daughter has a makeup kit. What do you do as dad? Because they have that makeup kit for their mom's house, so they're always transporting it. My daughter doesn't want to take hers to school, so we always have to drop it off at her mom's house prior to me dropping her off to school. What do you do as dad? Do you do you replicate the makeup bag? So one for dad's house, one for mom's house, or do you continue the status quo? I mean, you try you try to replicate it in every way possible. I mean, to me, a good parent that cares about their kids and not about personal inconveniences looks, looks at a divorce uh, as much as possible as how can I provide an outcome that is least disruptive to my kids? Right. Like they didn't ask for this. They didn't want it. Uh, and they'll it's probably, definitely not their fault. Yeah. That's right. It's definitely not their fault. Yeah. So what, what can we do? So of course, one of the things you could do is, is you want to orient your schedule to create at least as minimal trauma as possible. Yes. Every little thing that can make them feel like their life is not as upended because really, frankly, no matter what the visitation schedule is, it's going to be upended. Yes. You just want to create a minimal upending. Then of course, physically uh, with the transfer of things, how can I not only mac maximize my schedule to help with the transport and transfer of things, AKA minimal transfers, but how can I replicate whatever mom has at her house at my house? Right. The thing is, is, you know, I'll, I'll jump into my personal experience. I mean, my daughter uh, has certain things that doesn't matter if what it is we would buy. I mean, she's going to want to bring those things over uh, those outfits. And we're not going to buy two of the same outfits. Right. That's right. ridiculous. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a moving target too. Sometimes like we don't always know. Um, which things she will want replicated at my house versus mom's house. Yes. Uh, so the, the bottom line is, is you do your best, but the easiest solution to this whole packing and unpacking and knowing what your daughter wants at or son wants at either house is just to minimize transitions, mm -hmm. minimize transitions, less packing, less carting stuff around. And it's just every time I imagine my kids carting stuff around, I just, I, my heart goes out to them because I know that, that's them literally carrying a my burden, you know, me and my ex's burdens on their shoulders. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's what I feel too. I mean, they 
look like houseless children when they're they're carrying these things around and it breaks my heart too we talked about sunday to sunday we call we call but really this exchange could take place on any day of the week and it could still be a week on week call right monday to monday tuesday to tuesday probably not the most convenient because the weekend would probably be the most convenient because most parents work monday through friday and the kids are in school monday through friday as well um what else type of schedules uh would you recommend for a 50 50 you know it's uh i always ask the client of course i try not to get presumptuous and go well i know it works in my world i know what's worked in other clients worlds so i'm going to tell you the way it's going to work for you i like to give options um and so that's really what, what i'm going to line out is a few more options okay because uh, some options you know the sunday to sunday might sound great for one parent but i've had firefighters or emts or whatnot and their schedules are so first responders exactly. as a whole Right. Exactly. And that their schedules would never work. But uh, like you mentioned, Monday to Monday, uh, I'll tell you, I don't I don't like the Monday to Monday because uh, you're you're dealing with going to school on a Monday with the stuff. Right. Or having to have the kids come home on a Monday after having played in one day of school, regather all their stuff and then get picked up that evening. So I don't like Monday to Monday, but it's an optional option. There's also an option of the week on week off Sunday to Sunday, but you add a midweek dinner. Um, that could be a Wednesday, uh, that goes with one, the other parent, not in possession. It could be safe from five to eight as a hypothetical or six to eight, something like that. And the midweek dinner is basically for the parent, not in possession, just not to go an entire week without seeing the kids. Yeah. I, if I had to throw my own personal two cents into it. Uh, depending on how old your kids are, to me, that's where this comes into play. Right. If you have young kids, I think it's a pretty harsh proposition to go straight Sunday to Sunday. Uh, I've got teenagers. Sunday to Sunday is not a huge problem. I'm not saying they, they love any schedule in a divorce, but I think that Sunday to Sunday is not a, a, a huge problem. But you add the midweek dinner for older kids, I think it's a little disruptive. Uh, for younger kids, I think they might want that touch point. Yes. Just to see the face, yeah. have a little dinner. Uh, that might be nice. It's just an optional thing. Another schedule, uh, it really has a couple variations. Uh, there's the 5-2-2-5 schedule and the 2-2-3 schedule. And what they really are is a parent could have a, a parent A will say Monday, to, Monday and Tuesday. Parent B would get uh, Wednesday and Thursday. And then there's an alternating of the weekends. Um, a variation of that is instead of a parent having every Monday and Tuesday, and then the other parent always having Wednesdays and Thursdays, is that resets. So sometimes one parent has Monday, Tuesday. Sometimes the other parent has Wednesday, Thursday. I don't really like that. I don't like, I don't like that schedule either. It's, it's chaotic. It's confusion. Yeah, yeah. totally. And I love that the the fact that there's at least an effort to be creative about these types of schedules. Sometimes they might fit a certain work schedule if there's a work schedule that happens to align perfectly with that. But I would say in the, in the, in a vacuum, I wouldn't say you want to have really any variability. Uh, I think it's wonderful um, when a child can have some sense of looking at a calendar and have an idea of when they know they're going to be with a certain parent. You know, whether two weeks from now they have a camp or two weeks from now they have a, a little thing that they want to go to with their friend, they can look at it and go, I think I know when I'm supposed to be with my parent. Right. And, I, you know, from personal experience, my, my girls will will go ahead and plan that um, around the schedule, which 
no father wants or no parent wants for their kids, but you know, it's an, it's, it's reality, right? I wanted to get back to these schedules because sometimes, especially when the kids are younger, um, you would exercise a, a five to do five and not necessarily a week on week off. But as the kids get older and a week on week off, um, either schedule, I should say, you run into specific holidays in the cold that the cold recognizes, right? We're talking about uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, spring break, um, Mother Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, and the child's birthday. Explain to us, because if mom gets Mother's Day and it's a week on week off and it runs into dad's week, how how does uh how would you reset that? Um, and and this is just general generally speaking, uh, so that the listeners can understand that there has to be some type of reset. That's why because we're running into holidays throughout the year. Yeah, one of the things you you want to avoid when you're creating these schedules is a three week consecutive period, right? So Speaking. let's say uh, there's let's just hypothetically say there's four weeks in a month. The first week you would have visitation. Uh, the second week you wouldn't normally have visitation, but the third week you would because we're doing alternating weeks. Well, let's just pretend that the second week uh, happens to also be a holiday for you, whether it be spring break or something. That means you would get the first, the second, and the third week of that month in a row. And of course, that bites against you equally. Uh, if you could say if it's the other parent in that scenario, you could go three weeks without seeing your kids. Nobody really wants that. So the best way I think that you um, you work the calendar, and this is just in the wording of your decree, it's very doable, but you want to start out looking at the calendar from uh, the perspective of where the, hol- the week-long type holidays fit. And you want to uh, have a reset provision that if there is a, uh, a, a spring break type holiday, uh, that there could technically be a, a two-week stack. Uh, that's okay. But there's not going to be a third week stack, okay? So after that that two week stack, just by virtue of the holiday, there's going to be a reset, and the alternating week, weeks uh, are modeled off of that reset. Yeah, I think this is really important, but because this goes into this is an attorney thing, right? So the attorney that you've hired um, to to draft the decree or to represent you and is drafting the decree needs to be savvy enough to identify that. You know, if you're running up against a possibility of a three week, uh, three week time period without ha- seeing your child, then we have to have some type of reset language in there, especially when we're dealing with, you know, expanded summer vacations or our summer visitations, I should say, in a week on week off or in a 50 50. What do you normally see for for summer? Because a standard possession order is 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 30 days um generally speaking, uh, and it, it differs by distance between the parents. But when you do, are doing a 50-50, what do you normally do for summers? I like to actually just do the week on, week off year round. Uh, I gotcha. However, you can also build in an extra week with the reset provision. Yeah, because you don't want to stack. That's why. Yeah. Third week. is Does it take some artful drafting? Yes. Can it be done? Absolutely. Is it somewhat complicated you could say that it is but if it's artfully drafted uh you can absolutely uh 
even just two parents that don't ever go back to their attorneys, they can use an artfully crafted decree and create their calendars and there'd be no arguments. It'd be simple to, to craft. There wouldn't be three week stacks. It'd be, you know, at worst or two week, but that's fine. Uh, there just wouldn't be the, the three week. So I think that we, we spoke about standard possession order at 50, 50 and that those two um, perhaps are the most common that are brought up, right? Uh, because standard possession orders are the most commonly ordered by a court uh, due to the presumption and the 50 fifties uh, come are not as common, but they're, they're brought up more commonly than this next schedule type that we're going to bring up, which is a modified uh, schedule. And this is something that's a little bit less than a 50 50, but more than a standard possession order. Um, and, you know, Interestingly enough, or coincidentally, I should say enough, um, I had a consultation this week and you told me after the consultation, when you and I spoke to each other, you, you asked me, what would he, because my client wanted a 50-50, they were practicing a pattern for the past four years of a standard possession order. And I told him that it was pretty unlikely to go into court and get the 50-50. And um, you told me, what would he say to having a schedule that was less than a 50-50, but more than what he's getting now as far as stand, standard possession order. Can you can you elaborate on, on this type of schedule? And, and basically, it's a modified possession order, right? To generally, to generally uh, I guess, describe it. Yeah, you know, sometimes the opposing party is just married, uh, sorry, pun, pun not intended, <laughs> to the concept of a standard possession order. And one of the go-to techniques we have is you add in a Wednesday overnight on the non-weekend weeks. So again, same possession order, every parent would get a, that's the non-primary, would get Thursdays of each week and first, third, and fifth weekends. Well, instead of that on the off weekend type weeks, instead of that one day, you add in the Wednesday overnight. And so your worst week would be two days. Your best week would be uh, Wednesday through uh, the re the rest of the weekend. Mm -hmm. If you actually add up all the time, um, clients find this hard to believe sometimes, but if you actually add up all the time, it gets quite close to a 50-50 schedule. Yes, it does. And so uh, you, a client would say, well, then why not just go for a more traditional 50-50 schedule if that's the case? And again, it goes back to what I said a moment ago. Some opposing parties are just really stuck. Maybe it's lawyer advice or they found something on the internet or their best friend told them you've got to get them on a standard possession or whatever it is. They feel stuck to this concept. Okay, let's work within your concept, but let's get it more to what I want. Now, you don't say that, but that's what you're effectively trying to do. Do you think there's a misunderstanding with that, though? Because I, I know a lot of opposing parties and even my clients to a certain extent let's give him or let's give her a standard possession order um, because they think that it's related to, to um, being the primary when in actuality you can be the primary and the other party can have more than the standard possession order. You know, do you, do you think that in your experience, do you, do you find that to come across? It's how you define primary. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that it, it goes to show how emotional um, so many of the outcomes and desires are that people have in family law cases because I'll have a client come in and he or she will say, I want sole custody or I want primary or 
the reality is you, you don't actually even see any of those terms. You don't even see really the term custody, uh, except in situations or, or circumstances that the client wouldn't have used it in that context. Uh, you know, a client will come in and say, I want sole custody. I'll say, what do you mean by that? Oh, I just want to make sure that, you know, I get child support and I want to make sure that I get more than 50% of the time. And I'm thinking to myself, and that's almost always how they mean it. And I'm thinking to myself, you use the word sole custody to mean you want more than half the time right. in child support. I'm yeah. going, that's what I'm really getting at is this. I'm not demeaning anyone for not understanding the legal terminology. Right. I mean, we, they just, they don't have experience, but it's interesting that sometimes these terms uh, can really confuse both parties. For example, imagine over the dinner table, she was, uh, he or she was that wanted this type of an outcome. Uh, throughout that kind of a term, it said, I want sole custody. What do you think the other spouse or party is going to think or do? It, it, it sounds really aggressive, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah, it, it sounds like you have no rights to your kids at that, or at least no decision-making authority for the kids, and you hardly visit them. Let me, we, we talked about this kind of throughout, but we talked about our personal experiences. Uh, obviously, both of us have kids, both, both of us uh, are, are divorced, and so we're, we have time with our kids. I have a standard possession order now, uh, which me and my ex-wife, we're pretty good, though we co-parent well. We agree on a lot of things um and we have modified what's in writing informally um by just agreeing to it, it's more than expanded it's not quite 50 50 but it's more than an expanded like we talked about um and it's working out for us how about in your situation what type of schedule do, do you have well i have the sunday to sunday six to six and i'll say that you know my ex and I have gotten along, uh, I'd say quite well for quite a number of years. I mean, uh, we do have some flexibility on when the kids come and go, they're older now, they're all in their teens. So, uh, you know, eye on the prize is always this, uh, this is, this is, I think if there's one thing you probably could take from this podcast episode, except for be kind is, Work on your relationship with your kids, because I, I will say this, that visitation can come uh, from the law. It can come from the judge. It can come from what your ex gives you. Um, of course, being kind goes a long way in those regards. But if you have an amazing relationship with your kids, um, what do you think they're going to do to the other party? Uh, or what do you think they're going to say to the other party when they're not spending as much time as they want with you? Right. The pressure is going to be on and it's going to be on and it's going to be on. What are ways you heart your relationship with your kids? You, you can, you can denigrate your ex. You can talk badly about your ex, your children, 98 times out of a hundred will always unconditionally love their mother or father. Yep. Okay. Well, in other words, the opposing party, yep. they're going to love that person. Here's, here's another point too, though. This is a way not to do it. Is we see this in teenagers when they don't want to go over to another parent's house, the parent will actually stop reaching out and and not expect them to come over and just cut off any type of communication. That also is not the right way to do it. I mean, I get that there's some emotional ties and and hurtfulness in there, but look, part of it too is being the adult in the situation, right? And yeah. and it's a tough 
pill to swallow. Um, but yeah, that, that's a that's a great point because the the window is finite. You know, what I mean, We're, the kids are 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 only young, and and they, obviously they grow up into teenagers, but they're gonna be out of the house as you know as soon as you turn around and blink your eye, right? And so it. It was hard for me when we were going through the divorce, but but now coming out of the divorce and also practicing for so many years, um, the best part of your advice was to be kind because that's what I forgot during the process myself, you know, and, and I remind my clients to do that now because it only helps in the future because you have to live post-divorce. You still have to be a parent post-divorce too. Yeah, just like you said, and you're still going to be a parent when they're out of the house and they're beyond the age of 18 because you can have thrown away, thrown around all the legal weight, all the, the muscle you want in court and making the kids know that you're fighting and fighting and fighting. And, and the reality is how, how are they going to perceive that when they're 18, 19, 20? I mean, how are they going to perceive you? You might have won in court. You might have gotten them forced to do something that they didn't want to do, but how are they going to perceive that when they're, uh, you know, they're 18, 19, 20 and, and beyond? Because the vast, this is the such, such the short-sighted view of people at times. The vast majority of the parenting time you'll ever have is after they leave the house. You just have to think about that. In fact, it dwarfs the amount of time you're really going to have with them while they're under the age of 18. So the investment is the long game. It's not the short game. Right. All right, man. Episode three, we did it. Um, Next week episode, uh, we're doing weekly episodes here. We're dropping in on Saturday. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Okay. We'll see you all next week. Tune in.